Get ready, here's all the science on why insulin doesn't make you fat. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. Today we are going to integrate the last five lessons where we looked at the regulation of glucose oxidation and fatty acid oxidation and storage by cellular energy status and by insulin. Now, let's look at what would happen when we eat fat or carbohydrate to see whether insulin is actually gonna lead to net fat storage because of its signaling in response to carbohydrate, or whether the true determinant of fat storage is the energy balance of our cells and our whole system when looked at together. Shown on the screen is the normal transport route of glucose. Glucose comes from the small intestine, goes through the portal vein to the liver, goes from the liver through the hepatic veins to the inferior vena cava, where it goes into the heart, and then comes out of the heart through the aorta, and through multiple arteries goes to many organs. Every single one of these organs expresses GLUT1 and GLUT3, which are glucose transporters that do not respond to insulin. That allows the glucose going through at normal fasting levels to give every cell of every tissue whatever glucose it needs. When glucose rises after a high-carbohydrate meal, the extra carbohydrate load first goes from the small intestine to the liver through the portal vein. The liver expresses GLUT2, which also doesn't respond to insulin, but is distinguished from GLUT1 and 3 by being relatively low affinity for glucose. What that means is that you need a lot of glucose to make it active. So the liver has GLUT1 and GLUT3, but it has a lot of GLUT2 that is there ready to kick in at high concentrations of glucose. And the fact that GLUT2 needs a lot of glucose to become active means that the high expression of GLUT2 in the liver is not gonna make you hypoglycemic when you don't have a big glucose load in. But it will be very effective at skimming the extra glucose off the top when you do have a big glucose load coming in. In addition, the liver also expresses a specific form of hexokinase known as glucokinase, or alternatively as hexokinase 4, which is not inhibited by glucose 6-phosphate. Ordinarily, in other tissues, if you had an accumulation of glucose 6-phosphate, you would inhibit glucose uptake. But in this case, 
you have GLUT2 skimming the extra glucose off the top of the additional glucose load, and then all that extra glucose is going to go through to glucose 6-phosphate without hexokinase being inhibited because of the expression of this specific form of hexokinase, hexokinase 4 or glucokinase. And what that does is it allows glucose 6-phosphate to reach high levels that turn on glycogen synthase and lead to the repletion of hepatic glycogen. So, because of the unique expression of GLUT2 and glucokinase in the liver relative to most other tissues, with the exception of the pancreas, and because the liver lies first along the circulatory route from the small intestine to the liver, the first thing you do with an extra hepatic, with an extra glucose load, is you replete your liver's glycogen stores before you do anything else. After you've repleted your hepatic glycogen stores, the extra glucose that's left over goes through the hepatic veins, through the inferior vena cava, into the heart. From the heart, it goes through the aorta and then through multiple arteries to reach many different tissues. Among these are skeletal muscle, pancreas, and adipose tissue. That glucose load can get taken up by GLUT1 and GLUT3 in any of these other tissues, but the extra glucose load that's well beyond the normal circulating fasting levels of glucose that hasn't been taken up by the liver for glycogen storage is going to be first taken up by the pancreas because the pancreas also expresses GLUT2 and glucokinase. That expression of GLUT2 and glucokinase allows the pancreas to take the second scoop off the top of the extra glucose load, and that's the primary driver of insulin. When the pancreas makes insulin, the insulin then acts on tissues that express GLUT4 and hexokinase 2. These include adipose tissue, and they include skeletal muscle, and although not shown in this diagram, they also include the heart. The expression of insulin-sensitive GLUT4 and hexokinase 2 allows the insulin produced by that extra glucose load that reached the pancreas first to stimulate skimming the rest of the top of that extra glucose load into skeletal muscle and adipose tissue. In skeletal muscle, the glucose can primarily have three fates. If energy status in the skeletal muscle is low, the glucose primarily gets converted to acetyl-CoA. The acetyl-CoA can enter the citric acid cycle and be burned for energy. If energy status in the muscle cell is low and the glycogen content is also low, then the glucose is used to replete the muscular glycogen stores. If the energy status is high, and the glycogen content is also high, the glucose is rejected from the cell because there's nothing to do with it. That leaves the glucose in the blood. Before we can talk about the relative fates of glucose in adipose tissue, we need to first talk about glycerol. Imagine that adipose tissue has expressed lipoprotein lipase, or LPL, so that it can take up triglycerides. LPL releases glycerol and fatty acids inside the capillary that then go into the adipose tissue, and they need to be reassembled into a triglyceride. 
The glycerol is a three-carbon backbone that's attached to three fatty acids, one at each carbon. That glycerol cannot go directly into triglyceride synthesis. Instead, because triglyceride synthesis is energy intensive, you need to phosphorylate it to glycerol phosphate. In this diagram, that's called L-glycerol 3-phosphate because the phosphate is on carbon 3, and it's called L because you'll notice that the central carbon is chiral, meaning there's one, two, three, four different things attached to it. So it can form isomers where the relative orientation of those four things in the order around the carbon can become important. But we're not dealing with a D-glycerol phosphate, so we can just call this glycerol phosphate. In order to get glycerol phosphate, you need the enzyme glycerol kinase. But glycerol kinase is mainly expressed in the liver and not in adipose tissue. So some low-carbohydrate advocates have suggested that carbohydrate is needed to store fat in adipose tissue precisely for this reason, because you can't reuse the glycerol backbone that came directly from fat, and you need a way to get glycerol phosphate in order to synthesize the triglyceride in the adipose tissue to keep it there. And in fact, there's some truth to the biochemistry here in that you can get glycerol phosphate from glycolysis. If glucose were in the adipose tissue, glycolysis would generate the triose phosphates, dihydroxyacetone phosphate, and glyceraldehyde phosphate, which are interconverted with triose phosphate isomerase. Dihydroxyacetone phosphate can be reduced to glycerol 3-phosphate. Notice it already has the phosphate on the third carbon. It differs from glycerol phosphate because the middle carbon has a carbonyl instead of a hydroxyl group. So NADH reduces that carbonyl to the hydroxyl group, converting dihydroxyacetone phosphate from glycolysis to the glycerol 3-phosphate that can be used for triglyceride synthesis. But notice here that this is a reversible reaction. It's catalyzed by glycerol phosphate dehydrogenase, and it can be used both to allow glycerol to enter glycolysis going from left to right in the liver because the liver expresses glycerol kinase, or it can allow glucose to yield the glycerol phosphate needed for triglyceride synthesis. But notice also that if this is a reversible reaction, the direction is going to depend on the relative concentration of the reactants. And to go from dihydroxyacetone phosphate to glycerol phosphate requires NADH as a reactant. And NADH occurs in the presence of high energy status. To go the other way requires NAD plus as a reactant. NAD plus is abundant in conditions of low energy status. So what that means is that high energy status favors using glucose for triglyceride synthesis, but low energy status favors using glycerol as a source of energy for glycolysis to use for energy metabolism. So the principal fates of glucose in adipose tissue are if energy status is low, glucose will be turned into acetyl-CoA for all of the reasons that apply to skeletal muscle. If energy status is high, 
and you have a lot of NADH, and you have a lot of glucose that can go through glycolysis to generate dihydroxyacetone phosphate, that favors making glycerol 3-phosphate to use for triglyceride synthesis. But you need fatty acids to join to the glycerol to get triglyceride synthesis. So momentarily, we need to ask the question, where are the fatty acids going to come from? For now, we'll point out that much like if energy status is high and glycogen content is high in muscle, glucose is rejected from the cell. In adipose tissue, if energy status is high and you don't have any fatty acids to make triglycerides, then glucose will be rejected from the cell. So now let's consider what's going to determine whether you're actually going to use glucose for glycerol 3-phosphate to put fat accumulating in adipose tissue. First of all, we know from experimental studies in humans that in lean individuals, muscle takes up more than six times as much glucose as adipose tissue after a meal. By contrast, in obese individuals, muscle and adipose take up roughly equal amounts of glucose after a meal. Why would this be? Because muscle is overwhelmingly more metabolically active than adipose. And it's the muscle's energy requirements that are going to drive glucose uptake because low energy status in the muscle drives high phosphofructokinase activity, which irreversibly commits glucose to glycolysis and lowers the concentration of glucose 6-phosphate allowing high hexokinase activity, which is what commits the glucose to staying in the cell, regardless of the expression of the glucose transporters. Remember, it's glu glucose transporters allow a greater rate of glucose into the cell. It's hexokinase activity that provides the direction to that cell. So low energy status in the muscle is driving intense directionality to inward transport from the blood into the muscle cell. Thus, in someone who's lean and in healthy energy balance, when they eat a meal, they need the energy. Therefore, the muscle takes up massively more glucose than the adipose tissue does. And so, glucose is primarily going to get burned for energy in skeletal muscle. In an obese person, the cells are overwhelmingly in high energy states. The muscle is going to take up less, and that's going to leave more left over for adipose tissue. But remember, even if glucose makes it to adipose tissue, we need a source of fatty acids for that to lead to triglyceride storage in the adipose tissue. If you're eating fat, the overwhelming source of fatty acids for that purpose is going to be the fat in your diet. But energy status is critical in determining whether that fat makes it to adipose tissue. In conditions of low energy status, Fat goes from the small intestine through the thoracic duct into the inferior vena cava, into the heart, into the aorta, and then multiple arteries to go to different tissues. It's not only insulin that controls LPL. In heart and skeletal muscle, AMPK activity and possibly other mediators of energy status also control LPL. So, high AMPK and low insulin characteristic of low energy conditions 
is going to drive up LPL in heart and skeletal muscle and drive down LPL in adipose tissue. That means that in low energy states, fat is first going to the heart and second going to the skeletal muscle and is only going to the adipose tissue if you have more than you need. Fat is mainly going to be taken up by adipose tissue under one of two conditions or the combination of both. One condition is that you have more energy than you need. The second condition is that you have a lot of carbohydrate available as an alternative fuel to fat. The carbohydrate is coming from the small intestine through the portal vein into the liver, through the hepatic veins, into the inferior vena cava, the heart, the aorta, and then multiple tissues, but it's going to act on the pancreas providing that you haven't used it all up to replete hepatic glycogen first, it's going to act on the pancreas to make insulin. That insulin is going to act to suppress LPL at heart and skeletal muscle and increase it at adipose tissue, driving fat away from heart and skeletal muscle towards adipose tissue. But insulin is also going to be driven by fatty acid spillover. So, under conditions of high energy status, obesity, insulin resistance, or really high fat meals, fatty acid spillover from adipose LPL is going to drive up insulin even further at the pancreas, and that's also going to be a factor at driving LPL up in adipose tissue and down in skeletal muscle and heart. So overall, whether fat makes it to adipose tissue for triglyceride synthesis is driven by a combination of signals of whether there's enough carbohydrate to burn in the tissues requiring fuel as an alternative to fat and extra left over, and whether you're in a very high energy state that's driving fatty acids spillover to the pancreas to drive up insulin even further. So, so far we've seen that if you're consuming glucose in a low energy state, that glucose is going to mostly go to the muscle instead of the adipose tissue. If you have a high energy state, that glucose will go to the adipose tissue, but it needs a source of fatty acids to generate triglycerides. If you're consuming fat, fat is going to act as the source of those fatty acids for triglyceride synthesis. But if you're not consuming carbohydrate, and or your energy status in general, in terms of calories, is very low, either of those things or their combination is going to drive the fat to be taken up by heart first and skeletal muscle second to be used for energy. The combination of having carbohydrate available as an alternative to fat and having more energy than you need is what's driving fat towards adipose tissue. But do you actually need glucose as the source of the glycerol backbone for triglyceride synthesis? You don't. Now let's take a look at why. This diagram shows the different contributors to glycerol 3-phosphate in adipose tissue for triglyceride synthesis. LPL in the capillaries will release glycerol and fatty acids in the blood that can be taken up by adipose tissue. But since the glycerol can't be used for triglyceride synthesis, the glycerol can go to the liver and be converted through gluconeogenesis into glucose, 
that can provide glucose to adipose tissue to make glycerol 3-phosphate, even in the absence of glucose coming in in the blood, in the diet. If you have protein in the diet, amino acids in adipose tissue can engage in partial gluconeogenesis, which is called gliceroneogenesis. And gliceroneogenesis is to go up halfway in the glycolytic pathway until you generate dihydroxyacetone phosphate that you can then convert into glycerol 3-phosphate. So you can have glucose in the diet that becomes the source of glycerol 3-phosphate, or you can have glycerol from the fat go through the liver to become the glucose that becomes the source of glycerol 3-phosphate, or you can take glycerol 3-phosphate generated from glyceroneogenesis from amino acids. And any of these can become the source of glycerol 3-phosphate to make triglycerides. So the ultimate determinant of whether you make triglycerides then is going to be the energy status of the cells and the provision of the substrates. You can get the basic substrates that you need as long as you have the fatty acids from somewhere. Those fatty acids, however, are overwhelmingly going to come from fat in almost any conditions. And that's because it's not that easy to make quantitatively large amounts of fat from non-fat precursors. Let's take a look. We started talking about what drives fatty acid synthesis in lesson five. Remember, in the citric acid cycle, high energy status inhibits alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, and it inhibits isocitrate dehydrogenase. That causes isocitrate to get backed up, which is then going to cause citrate to get backed up. Citrate leaving the mitochondrion into the cytosol is the event at the cellular level that initiates fatty acid synthesis. That citrate becomes the source of cytosolic acetyl-CoA, and acetyl-CoA carboxylase converts acetyl-CoA to malonyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA carboxylase is governed by insulin and energy status. The principal direct governor of acetyl-CoA carboxylase is AMPK. AMPK inhibits it. Insulin inhibits AMPK directly, and high energy status inhibits AMPK directly. Because of their direct inhibition of AMPK, they indirectly stimulate, shown by these dotted, the dotted arrow going up here, they indirectly stimulate acetyl-CoA carboxylase. So partly insulin and partly high energy status are what's driving acetyl-CoA carboxylase's conversion of acetyl-CoA to malonyl-CoA for fatty acid synthesis. But here's the critical point. Even this effect of insulin activating the enzyme cannot do anything to cause the synthesis of malonyl-CoA if citrate doesn't leave the mitochondrion. And the regulation of citrate accumulation in the mitochondrion is not hormonal. It's driven by high energy status, or as we discussed in lesson four, also reactive oxygen species. But in terms of energy balance versus insulin, insulin is not controlling the citrate level. It's the citrate that provides the substrate to make the malonyl-CoA for fatty acid synthesis, 
So the regulatory effect of insulin on AMPK that indirectly activates the acetyl-CoA carboxylase enzyme is going to be secondary to the provision of the basic substrate that you need. We also talked in previous lessons how citrate itself is needed to fully activate the enzyme. So fatty acid synthesis from non-fatty acid precursors, such as glucose that provides pyruvate into the citric acid cycle, is only going to be stimulated, stimulated by insulin in the context of high energy status. In fact, fatty acid synthesis, or de novo lipogenesis, in net, has been experimentally characterized in humans in a number of different contexts. And in virtually every context, it is a minor pathway. Some of the estimates are listed on the screen. In men eating a standard Western diet, you have one to two grams of fat produced from carbohydrate per day. In women on a standard Western diet, that's one to two grams per day in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, and that increases to three to six grams per day in the follicular phase. In various disease states, such as obesity, diabetes, infection, or inflammatory disease, you can get general increases in men and women to three to six grams per day across the board. A 70% carbohydrate, 15% fat diet, a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet can drive 10 grams per day of the synthesis of fat from carbohydrate. Even on a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet, someone that's consuming 2,000 calories is probably consuming three to four times more fat in their diet than they're converting from carbohydrate. So even on a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet, the overwhelming source of fatty acids for adipose triglyceride synthesis has to be fat in the diet. There's one context in which de novo lipogenesis can actually increase to very substantial amounts. And that's this last bullet point, when total carbohydrate exceeds the total energy expenditure. In that case, you have virtually unlimited rate that can meet whatever you need to store the extra carbohydrate as fat. Notice that I didn't say when you have an excess of calories and you have a high carbohydrate diet. I said when your total carbohydrate exceeds your total need for calories. Here's a study where they quantified that effect. This paper is, is titled the response to massive carbohydrate overfeeding in man. What they did was they first depleted their glycogen stores by putting them on a low carbohydrate diet and on a high exercise program so that the low carbohydrate intake would deplete hepatic glycogen and the exercise would deplete glycogen stores in the muscles. Then they put them on an 86% carbohydrate, high calorie diet where even the carbohydrate load was exceeding the energy requirements. And what you can see is that the first thing to happen is that carbohydrate oxidation increases to about 500 grams per day. So virtually all their energy is being met by carbohydrate oxidation. 
The second thing that happens is they start repleting their glycogen storage. You can see that on day four to five, most of the excess over carbohydrate oxidation is going to glycogen. But then on day five to six to seven to eight, you get this slow creeping up of net de novo lipogenesis, in other words, fatty acid synthesis. In the transition state between day five and day eight, you top off your glycogen stores and fatty acid synthesis becomes progressively more relevant until day seven where the glycogen stores are replete and de novo lipogenesis takes over. But even then, de novo lipogenesis takes over after the need for carbohydrate oxidation is fulfilled. In other words, what do you do with massive amounts of carbohydrate? Step one, burn it for energy. Step two, store the excess as glycogen. And step three, turn it into fat when there's nothing else left to do with it. But in real life, outside the context of an experiment like the one we just looked at, when would your total carbohydrate load exceed your total energy expenditure on any kind of consistent basis? The only two examples I've been able to think of are a hot dog eating contest where you consume so many buns that the carbs in the buns exceed your total energy expenditure for that day. But if that's going to become meaningful, you're going to have to engage in a lot of hot dog eating contests. You're going to get fat and your glucose, if it exceeds your total energy expenditure will become the source of fatty acids. But even up through that point, if you bring your carbohydrate down just a little bit, it's the fat that's the first source of those fatty acids. The other context I can think of is certain tribes in Africa have rituals where they intentionally fatten themselves. And it's conceivable that if they're fattening themselves with milk, they not only have fat providing fatty acids to adipose tissue, but maybe the carbohydrate load exceeds the total calorie expenditure. But people on a normal Western diet who are growing progressively fatter simply by looking at our obesity epidemic, in those cases, de novo lipogenesis is only one to two grams per day in someone healthy, in obesity, three to six grams per day. In other words, on a diet that's supplying 30 to 40% fat, the overwhelming source of fat is a fat for fatty acids, of fatty acids for adipose triglyceride synthesis is dietary fat. Now, does that mean that eating fat necessarily makes you fat? Not at all, because if you eat fat in the context of healthy energy balance or a caloric deficit, the fat goes first to your heart when it needs energy, second to your skeletal muscle when it needs energy, and then it goes to the wide distribution of tissues that have lower expression of LPL according to their needs for fat for energy. And it's the excess that goes to the adipose tissue. So the overwhelming determinant of getting fat is not insulin. It's the energy status of your cells, and the energy status of you overall. Now, that doesn't mean that weight loss is all about calories in versus calories out in the sense 
that you still need an approach that's going to allow you to normalize your energy balance in a sustainable way. And for some people, a low-carbohydrate diet can be a very helpful way to do that. But it's still the case that even in contexts where carbohydrate restriction is used to achieve weight loss, it's not because insulin makes you fat. Because insulin isn't the primary thing driving fat storage. It's because of the caloric deficit. Because as the anatomy and physiology and biochemistry and molecular cellular biology all converge on, it's calorie balance at the end of the day that's determining what you do with your fuel. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable transcripts, downloadable audio, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a form for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.